0: there and welcome to a new episode of the Hashtag Mobile podcast. I promised you a special guest today and I have one. In case you don't know what you're listening to, this is Rachel Hernan Dunn. I'm editor of the Missouri Times and today I am here with Republican Senior State Representative, Representative Holly Rader. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You am excited to be on. You might be having the best week ever. Well, (laughs) I do feel like it's been a really good week. (laughs) So right off the top, yesterday, Monday, the House passed Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, PDMP. Right, so out of the House. So now to go
1: on to the Senate, but this is truly the earliest that we've ever gotten it out of the House. And certainly Speaker Har has been um, incredible with that, wanting, wanting us to get it over to the Senate early so that they have... Plenty of time to work on it and in an attempt to you know, hopefully get it
0: truly agreed and finally passed this year. So that's exciting. Um, what I always wonder, from a journalistic standpoint, Missouri is the only state that doesn't have a PDMP.
1: Why? Right. And, and it's been the same argument year after year, but yet there's been no evidence Presented for this argument, and it's, it's truly a red herring. It's something that is, um, you know, people are concerned about, but there hasn't been any evidence creating it for, for that concern. We have 49 states plus uh, Puerto Rico and Guam, two territories, that have PDMP, and none of them have had breaches in their data. But every single year, that is what is brought up on the floor is, well, we don't need a government database. It's going to be, you know, we're going to have breaches. Well, this is, isn't some database of information. This is a medical record. And so it is an electronic medical record. No one in, in this state house has filed a bill to get rid of electronic medical records. And we've had those for years. This is an electronic medical record. It goes by federal HIPAA law. It's doubly encrypted. So, uh, for instance, yesterday a, a discussion was had on the floor about a breach in Virginia. Well, it wasn't a breach. Someone had said that they had gotten Virginia's prescription drug monitoring information. So they didn't get $10 million. In ransom money, they were going to release these... Um, patients information the state didn't give them the ransom money because the information is encrypted they couldn't read it oh my goodness and so and and nothing happened so that's not a breach no one's information was given and so that's that's not a breach and um, we have to keep this into perspective and understand this is a tool for the medical profession. To be able to see what their patients are on, so a doctor cannot look up his neighbor's narcotics. Okay. Because HIPAA, law. a physician's only allowed to look at his patients or her patients' narcotic information, medical information, and so it's incredibly important to keep that in perspective. And the fact that we've not had any breaches, and California passed the first one in 1939. Right. So these have been in place for a really long time. Now, mind you, it wasn't anything like today's, but no state has backed up. And President Trump and his commission on opioids, their recommendation was to expand these programs to give doctors more information, because that's what it's going to take. We know that knowledge is power. That's what it's going to take to help curb this epidemic is for the medical profession, To see what's going on with their patient, to really see these trends of being high risk for addiction on the early end so that they can start steering them into either medication-assisted treatment, um, physical therapy, other medications. I mean, there are so many options that have great outcomes, but catching these signs early is what's important. And with doctors not having this info, it's hard for them to catch it.
0: So is there proof that PDMPs are effective in fighting opioid misuse?
1: Yes. So all of the states that, um, you know, um, there, well, there's a study. Let's see. There's a study that came out two years ago that is. It was a national study on all the PDMPs, all the Missouri. And it had, I think it was one12 deaths, are lives saved for every 100,000 wow. with the PDMPs. And so they have evidence, they did national study, and, they, and the states are not apples to apples. And so that's what this, it was from the Health uh, Department of Health and Human Services. And that's what they looked at. They took into account the differences in states. And you know, when you look at when the opioid epidemic started, so many years ago, you really look at the states with the high occupational hazards. Those are the states that were marketed to very heavily, like West Virginia with their mining operations. Right. So they were marketed to very heavily with these opioids to help with pain. Physicians were told then that they weren't addictive. So they we're writing a lot of scripts. And then that just really spider webs out through families that have DNA like mine that, you know, when I take an opioid, if I take it for several days, for several days I go through withdrawals, flu symptoms, because my body stops making, when I get a synthetic endorphin, it stops making my own endorphins. And so it's very much, neuroscience has really shown us what's happening. Our DNA is very different. Some my husband can take opioids and it never bother him. He can stop when, when his injury is over. But with me, or like my sister, who was an addict by the time she was 16, my cousin died at 39 from long-term opioid abuse. My daughter became an addict at 17. For us, our DNA is different, and we automatically go into withdrawals. Well, if you don't know the neuroscience of that, you just think this pill's gonna makes me feel better, (laughs) and I'm gonna take it. Um, You don't think about it ruining your life.
0: I find it interesting as just an aside with medical marijuana coming to Missouri. Have you seen the studies that say in the first year that a state has medical marijuana opioid abuse goes down 20 to 30% in the first year?
1: I have seen some of those.
0: And it, It's just amazing to me. And it, Where I come from, there's a stigma against taking Vicodin or what have you, but there's also a stigma against marijuana, even if it's prescribed by a doctor. And it seems like no matter what, at some point in your life, you will be in excruciating pain. Right. And you want to be treated medically. Exactly. And by a professional who has access to information. Right. And these medicines
1: were made for the good and then they do work for the good, but just like anything, they have to be used properly. And we know much more about the proper use of them now than the physicians did 10 years ago or... or 15 years ago. And so now it's, it's really just getting the information in their hands about their patients so that they can make those good calls. And, you know, we have many, many unintended overdoses um, where, because if you have a, if you have your um, medical doctor put you on an opioid because you've fallen and hurt your back, but your medical doctor doesn't know or you forget to tell them, that your psychiatrist has you on a xanax for anxiety and maybe an ambient to help you sleep taking those three together at certain dosages will cause overdose and so we have many accidental overdoses that if the physicians were just able to see what other physicians were giving their shared patient they could talk about that they could explain you can't take these together or they can change the dosage there are things that they can do but without that information they're just shooting an arrow in
0: the dark now you had talked about how there are concerns about databases but aren't those people who have those concerns don't they have a driver's license in their back pocket that's part of a state-managed database?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, um, one other thing, when I was first elected and I realized, and, and people who are angry with me were coming out to my house, and I realized as an elected official, I mean, as anyone who votes, our, we, our address is accessible, Yes, you know, (laughs) and it's like okay, well, that's more bothersome to me. But um, we are we are all in databases, and for anyone who's gotten a prescription and not been concerned about where they got it filled, there's no reason to be concerned about this because if you have gotten a prescription filled at Target, at Walmart, at CVS, or Walgreens, you're in a national database with with people other than your actual medical professional that you have, have made that appointment with that that could see that information so that's you know and I know it's pharmacy techs and it, you know different ones and and it's secure as well but I'm saying if, if a hacker wanted to get if medical information was what they wanted, they there are other places that could be getting hacked and we just don't hear about them getting hacked and the reason is because hackers want credit card information. They want right. dates of birth and social security numbers. They don't want to know if you were taking Adderall. <laughs> it's not.
0: And then on top of that, so there's also a similar system, and I'm sure you could probably tell me the differences, but especially this time of year, whenever the weather is crazy in Missouri, which is probably all times of the year, people like me take Sudafed, and we sign the thing,
1: right. and...
0: I'm presuming that system works. Right. And interestingly enough, so
1: the same vendor that does Missouri Pseudofed Registry is who is doing St. Louis County's PDMP Interesting. program. Interesting. And so they actually do 41 other states. They do the PDMPs for 41 other states. Their apparatus is the vendor. They have, have a wonderful track record, um, very high, highly credentialed and um, do a wonderful job.
0: Interesting, and that was, a, that was the last thing I was gonna ask you about on PDMP, is St. Louis, St. Charles, and Jefferson County all have county-based PDMPs. What have you seen since those were enacted? Right, so we,
1: have, we actually have over half of Missouri's counties are now in the St. Louis County PDMP. So 87% of Missouri's population is resides in a county, has a local PDMP and so what that says is is like if I'm filling a prescription in Cape Girardo, if I have filled one in St. Louis my pharmacist in Cape Girardeau would be able to know we'd be able to see that I have filled one in St. Louis the day before or whatever and so but if I'm in say Christian County and they haven't passed it yet, but they have had a, a local meeting, and so I do look forward to them adding in soon. If I'm in Christian County and I get something filled, that pharmacist or if I go to a physician there, that doctor, has no way of knowing what I've gotten in Cape Dror County or St. Louis County. And so with us having over 50% of the counties, the majority of the population, physicians are using it and which is which is incredibly important because physicians are not mandated which is one of the arguments that we've gotten into on the floor many states have passed physician mandates and they do have better outcomes with a physician mandate to use it before prescribing but i don't know that any of the states passed the mandate the first year that they passed the program you passed the program People get used to using it, understand that it's it's not clunky anymore. It's it's very easy to use actually. And then physicians want to use it. And in Missouri, we have had a, a very good percentage, high percentage of physicians who are utilizing this because it's important for their practice. So St. Louis County, it's my understanding, has seen an uptick this year in um, overdose deaths. But, So the problem is is that immediately following a prescription drug monitoring program, you do see more of a excuse me, uptick in your illicit drugs use. But then you then it starts spiraling down. And the reason is is because these physicians have started identifying patients that need additional help. And right now the illicit drug use has gotten so bad in Missouri that we are seeing more deaths. But, once we get the entire state covered, we should start seeing that go down. Um, because, some, um, three-fourths of patients, three-fourths of heroin users started with opioid addiction. Interesting. So you don't go sh- typically straight to illicit drugs. You go, you know, you like with my daughter, um, when you can't before or can't get a hold of the medications any longer. And with or without a PDMP, physicians end up recognizing it. The problem is, is, it's two years down the road, three years down the road when it's clearly obvious that you're, you're becoming an addict. When when they start cutting you off, I mean, that's when you turn to the illegal drugs. With the PDMP, they can help you before you get to that point. Right. And they can help start cur- curbing you back. Pulling you back getting you on some different medication um, but so when you when you move to meth or heroin that's when you you really start spiraling down and that and that's when you know the medications on the black market some are laced with fentanyl some carfentanil and you know one
0: one hit can actually kill you Sorry, I was denoting when to snip that out. <laughs> <laughs> so this is definitely a tool that can be used in the medical field that has been effective other places. Right, and the it's only, out of the
1: house early. It's out of the house early, and um, and I'm really hopeful that the Senate will will give it give it attention and get to it quickly. The only other thing that I would like to <laughs> mention about the PDMP that was mentioned on the floor quite a bit is our concern for chronic pain patients because, you know, these, these medications are necessary for many people. Many people are chronic pain patients and must have these. But right now in Missouri, our physicians are forced to be investigators. And so as a chronic pain patient, you're actually having to jump through more hoops than you would right. have to if the PDMP was in place statewide because then your physician could actually see, see what you're on. Prescribe with confidence, that you're not, yes. you know, you don't need four drug tests. And, um, and it wouldn't be as hard to get your medications. And people are concerned and they hear, um, you know, oh, someone got flagged and then they got cut off. Well, the, the program doesn't cut anyone off. That's still a professional call. The physician makes that call as to whether their patient should be cut off or not. I mean, people are getting cut off now without the PDMP. So this is a better tool, a better look for that physician to make the best um, decision for their patient.
0: It's interesting that you say prescribe with confidence because that's something that I've personally seen in Jefferson City. I had um, some dental issues when I first moved to Jeff and the most excruciating pain of my life and the doctors would not prescribe me anything and I just like, why am I here? Like, if you if you won't treat me, if you're not comfortable treating me, right. and it's like, I, I was a house staffer at the time. It's not like I, I didn't look sketchy. Like I right. didn't think I did. Yeah. Maybe I do, <laughs> but it concerned me then. And I'm pretty sure you would actually file this bill that year too. And I was sitting there thinking, like, why does my why does my doctor not feel comfortable treating me and making me feel better? Right.
1: And so that they, was on the
0: side, but yeah, and
1: they, they just have no idea where else you've been. And if this is a problem for you and, and they're really trying and they want to treat their patients right. properly and they want to keep people without pain, but um, they are having to make some decisions with half of the information right now.
0: Yes. So next big news for you, you have a, a bill addressing Hmm, I don't even know. I'm sure you can put it much more gracefully than I can, but it's about HIV. It's about how you are treated criminally related to HIV. And Alicia, our rockstar reporter at the Missouri Times, just shameless shout out to her, um, went to the hearing and said there was an amazing amount of emotional and powerful testimony. So what is the bill? Why did you file it?
1: So the testimony is really incredibly powerful, and it's, it's something that you just don't think about every day. But in, in Missouri, several states still have HIV-specific laws on the books. And so what I mean by that is, is is HIV is called out in Missouri statute. No other disease is, but if you have HIV and you transfer it, knowingly not purposefully so if you have HIV and you tell your partner that you have HIV but then that you break up something happens that partner decides to be vicious and turn you in and say that they didn't know that you had HIV it is at that point that he said she said and it is a um, a felony if you transferred HIV and it's a he said, she said, and they believe the person saying they didn't, they weren't told.
0: And that's, that's dozens of years behind bars.
1: Right. Like default. That's like our worst. Like you're that, done. That's our worst. And then if, if you have sex with someone, and you can't prove that you told them that you have HIV, but you didn't transfer it to them, it's Class B felony. So, literally, you can drink and drive, knowingly drink and drive, and kill someone and get less of a penalty than if you tell someone that you're HIV positive, but you can't prove that you told them.
0: And there's there's no laws where if you transfer any other venereal diseases. No. Is that antiquated to say that? Is that what people say now? Sexually transmitted infections, whatever it's supposed to be called. <laughs>
1: Communicable diseases. Yes. Sexually transmitted diseases. <laughs> the flu, like. Right, and you know none I've, of that is criminal. And so i right, and so I've been working with the prosecutors' association on this because they're the ones tasked with trying to figure out. How to properly prosecute or not prosecute in these cases, but Missouri law, because because it has HIV-specific laws, they have to go by those statutes. Now, Texas completely repealed their HIV-specific statutes because you have prosecutors can prosecute under the assault statutes. They have all the tools that they need right. to prosecute. If someone knowingly transfers HIV, and it's a nightmare. if they're out, if they're doing that, then that's assault. Absolutely. And the prosecutors can do the full extent of the law. But the way that since we have HIV specific language, they have to go by those statutes. And it turns into, he said, she said. And then it's just whoever's most believable in court. One gentleman that testified that actually spent nine years in jail, some nine years of us paying this gentleman who has a degree, could have been working um, to sit in jail because his girlfriend, they split up. She went, said that he had not told her. He had it tattooed on him that he was HIV positive. But she was still more believable. Wow. He spent nine years in, in prison with us paying the tab. Wow. Nine years of his life. Yeah. And now he, he's a felon. And so he can't get a job and he has a degree. Oh, my gosh. And so it's just, um, it's, number one, it's very discriminatory the way that we have HIV-specific laws. But number two, we have 13 counties which is also my syringe access bill is, is because of this. We have 13 counties in Missouri that is on the CDC's national watch list for their top 250 counties being watched across the US. Missouri has 13 of those for HIV and Hep C outbreaks, for possible outbreaks. So any one of us that has ever had unprotected sex or are Kids, our extended family, we're not both virgins when you get married, should be concerned about this. Yeah. Now, the good news is, as medical technology, I mean, we have come such a long way. We're in the 80s when these bills were first created. It was very scary. And, and we knew we have actually have medications now that take you down to where you have zero viral load, and what that means is you can't transmit it.
0: I've seen it, and it's weird, but there's commercials for one.
1: Yes. <laughs> I've, I've seen that. Which was
0: a weird conversation to have with my kid, like explaining yes, about this so, commercial.
1: <laughs> yes. And so zero viral load, so you cannot transfer it. So if the whole crux of the bill is, is to remove the stigma, it's a, it's a disease. It's an F virus to remove the stigma so people get tested. They're not scared to get tested. So people get tested and get on the medication, and then they're not ready. Right? And so that's what we want. We don't want 13 counties being watched for outbreaks.
0: I did not know that, and that's terrifying.
1: It's terrifying. We want people to get on, to get tested, know their status, get on this medication, that they have a lifespan that's almost the same as someone who doesn't. And they can't transfer it. And so, you know, one of the one of the ladies that came and testified, she's a grandmother now, but as a young mother, going through a divorce. And um, she wanted to get tested. She was having some illnesses and she felt she needed to get tested. And her doctor said, no, you're not high risk. You don't meet any of the criteria. She said, I, I just feel like I do it tested tested her yes HIV positive her husband had been having an affair so here she is young mother and she felt that she had just gotten her you know
0: just yeah.
1: you know and um, here she is now a grandmother and advocating to remove the HIV specific laws and one of the things that she has found in in being, and she's healthy, she runs marathons, you know, I mean, it's incredible, the medication, how, if if you get tested and get on the treatment. Right. Um, But one of the things that she has found in working with women who are HIV positive is that many of them are kept in violent situations with domestic abuse because of their spouses using coercion to, I'm going to tell your boss or I'm going to say that you didn't tell me. So there are many things that are, are being used with this because of us having these specific laws. Because it's criminal right. to have HIV and have sex and not be able to prove that that person knew you we were positive.
0: That's so interesting, because at the same time, there's STIs you can get in high school that will make it impossible to have kids. HPV causes cancer. Yes. Hep
1: C. I mean, there are other things that are incredibly life-threatening, harmful.
0: With much less development of treatment. Right. Interesting.
1: Yes. So, you know, I mean... and of course, anyone who is who is spreading HIV or are not, you know, being reckless and not caring about, of course, they need to, to be prosecuted. That is, that's vicious and a heinous crime if you're doing that, but purposefully. But to have it, he said she said, I mean, the man with a tattoo on him saying he is positive, and he spent nine years it's beyond me
0: that's so wild
1: right and so these are things that um you know are are difficult to to start talking about on the surface but it's all a part of public health and prison reform and you know for for the future missourians we want missouri to be healthy we want to not be having outbreaks of of cnhf
0: you know the speaker keeps talking about bold solutions so maybe this is one of where is the bill now
1: so it is in committee. It's a health policy. We had an excellent um, committee hearing, and like I said, the Prosecutors Association. I've been working with them every step of the way um, to make sure that we're we're in lockstep. You know, they're they're helping with the bill. But so right now, we've got a couple of, of tweaks that we're making with the definition of. of who's, we removed HIV specific, and we've changed it to a definition of um, communicable disease. And then, but we want to make sure with communicable disease with our definition that we're not
0: expanding that to spreading chickenpox. You know, and I so, remember to the state who gave me chickenpox.
1: Right, <laughs> Just <so> you, know. <laughs> so, you know, we want to be sure that. Um, we're being as thoughtful and, and cautious in the process to where we're um, not harming things by trying to help remove the stigma and encourage testing. Big bill, big bill. So, there's one more bill
0: that we want to talk about, and it is HB 700 and it's grandparents' rights. Yes. So, what was the inspiration behind filing this bill? I have actually had probably more
1: constituents reach out to me that are having problems with these issues, grandparents' rights issues, than any other issue. And it's a spinoff from the opioid epidemic. So we have children that are going into foster care that we have grandparents that want to take them, that are having to jump through hoops, um, pay attorneys, wait while these children sit in foster care to get these kids which is hard to understand. Um, but then we also have grandparents who have had children living in their homes with a parent who's having addiction problems or, or, or then gets into trouble and gets incarcerated and the children or, or goes off and because of the addiction doesn't come back for months and then the children get taken by the other parent, even though they've been living in these grandparents' homes, which is great for them to be taken by the other parent and and loved and cared for, but then these grandparents are being cut out of their lives. And so our law now says that in that case, a grandparent can't be denied seeing their grandchild um, for more than 90 days. So, you know, four times a year you think about that's a home that these children have been living in. And so there are just there are different, different situations that are all coming to kind of the same underlying problem that we need to update. We need to update our, our statutes to, for the situations that we are facing today and that is a lot of children that have been removed from their homes that have family members that want to be a part of their lives and can be a part of their lives. But we need to fix our statutes so that we make that more accessible. So what we've done is, so we're starting with changing that 90 days and we're going to try to change it to 30. And there are some other tweaks that I'm working with the department right now to um, help streamline this. You know, so many of these cases are just tied up in, in court for months, for years, and I, mean, I honestly cannot tell you how many people have called me and said, my grandkids were taken and they're in foster care and I'm trying to get them and this is causing a problem or the guardian had lied to this or, you know, this judge or that, and it's like, wow, I mean, that is. The children have already been through so much. If that grandparent's home is safe, which takes a check, you know, (laughs) a run through the home background check, let those babies be there. That's who they know. They've already been through so much. Why are you now placing them in, in a stranger's home for the state to
0: pay for? Right. It makes sense that even in a very turbulent time in a child's life, to bring some facet of stability to them. That must be, they, it, must, it would make it so much better for them, it seems. Yes, yes. Interesting. So, so where is this bill now? So
1: right now it is it has been filed, and I checked on it today, so I'm hoping it gets referred to the Committee on Aging today. And, um, you know, we've got a couple of uh, that Neely, has worked on some of these issues, and, and he and I are, are can talk some more, and, and then also Lynn Morris, and so we I th- I think that it's something that we can come together and and find maybe several tweaks that could just be helpful, sure. and and allow more accessibility to the children. You don't want to cut out half a, a half of a child's. DNA from their life. You know, if if they've already lost one parent, they shouldn't lose all communication with that side of the family. And um, it's incredibly important. And especially when these children want to foster care and the state is paying for them to be cared for by a stranger when they could be in in a home that they're used to being in.
0: Right. You know, looking at these three bills that you have they all seem to have this theme of empowerment you see and i mean I, i've always thought this about you but you are constantly inspired and it's been kind of fun I, we came into the capital the same year it's been fun to watch you
1: Thank you. I'm from a
0: nerd way i'm
1: a very passionate person <laughs> and, uh, i definitely um you know i i love my life and my home and and my children and my favorite. Title will always be Mama, and um, you know I'm. I ran for office because I'm passionate about changing policy to help people. You know, I grew up incredibly poor, and it's been by God's grace that I am educated, that I um, have the ability to have a beautiful family and a comfortable home and a thriving business. And I want so badly for other people to be able to break the poverty cycle, like I did, like many in my family have not. And so I'm very passionate about these policies that really affect people's lives and, and really help the issues that it's hard to talk about, that a lot of people want to put their head in the sand and, and act as if it's not going on, but it is going on, and it's painful. And so I think it's incredibly important while I'm here that um, I don't waste a minute of my time. And um, I'm, I'm definitely not one that you'll... See sitting in a seat and just pushing a button
0: so something our readers want me to ask you speaking of while you're here you changed your campaign committee to maybe do something in 2020 yes I hear you're running for senate maybe yes yes
1: so I I did I filed all the necessary paperwork to change it to senate now of course everything's on the table it it depends on what the constituents want Um, like I said I mean I'm I love my home. I love my business. And, um, and my husband and I have a really good time. You know, we have part of our business is in Mobile, Alabama. That's, you know, <laughs> besides Southeast Missouri, Mobile, Alabama is a pretty cool place. And, um, you know, we have a lot of fun. I have a, a, a grandson that I love being with every day, and I have a new grandbaby on the way.
0: Oh, my and, goodness. Yes.
1: And so if, if the constituents want me here fighting for them, I really do want to do that. But um, you know, you never know what the next year could bring as we, we walk through this, and you know, like I could be at home working on my business also. So, but but um, I am looking at that senate seat and definitely working towards it.
0: And, and that's Cinder you know, Wallingford's seat, right? It is, yes. And Sometimes he's it's he's the terming same time up.
1: That I do, and so it's it's exciting. I worked in uh, for Joanne Emerson in Cape Girardeau. And was treasurer of the Republican Women's Club for two years and so made a, you know um, made a lot of great friends in Cape Girardeau over the past ten years and um, you know I look, I look forward to representing at adding Cape Girardeau into into my district of, of <laughs> representation and
0: um, we'll see. Well awesome. Well good luck of course. I mean it's not like you're leaving right now right we still have the rest of this session we have
1: a lot going next on. next session yes
0: we're stuck with you that's right that's <laughs> exactly right well representative raider thank you so much for joining the hashtag Moledge podcast today brought to you by the missouri times and water today because it is insanely windy outside <laughs> yes and thank I've-
1: you for having me i have fun
0: And of course, I will be back Monday unless I'm feeling impulsive tomorrow and feel like doing a podcast every day this week.